ವಸುದೇವಸುತ ಕಂಸಚಾಣೂರಮರ್ದನಕಿ ಪರಮಂದ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ವಂದೇ ಜಗದ್ಗುರು ಗುಡ್ ಈವ್ನಿಂಗ್ ಎವ್ರಿಬಡಿ ವಿ ಆರ್ ರಿಸ್ಯೂಮಿಂಗ್ ಅವರ್ ಭಗವದ್ಗೀತಾ ಕ್ಲಾಸಸ್ ಟೆಂಪರರಿ ಫಾರ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ಅ ಮಂತ್ so i'll be here till the end of january so we'll have our regular classes on on fridays and we'll take it up where we left it um we are doing the third chapter of the bhagavad gita and we had done up to the 16th verse don't forget i'll give you a little bit of a <laughs> recap i remember this statistics teacher we used to have and he would you know in statistics nowadays it's called data science but you start with long derivations so this implies this implies this this implies this and the whole blackboard would be full of formulae and this gentleman would fill up the blackboard and the end of the session comes uh, summer vacations and when he comes back the first class after the summer vacations he starts off it comes straight picks up a chalk this implies and then he goes <laughs> we are totally at sea the third uh, chapter of the bhagavad gita sri krishna is talking about that yes ultimately we have to attain enlightenment call it god realization or self realization but until that point what do you do with life we are still working we are still living our life in this world and uh, how do you live life as a spiritual seeker sri krishna's answer is karma yoga transform your actions into spiritual practice which actions all actions while explaining karma yoga sri krishna introduces a beautiful uh, paradigm of the cycle um he says uh, in the 16th verse which we did he talks about this cosmic cycle where we are part of a universe which is there's give and take we receive from the universe and we give back to it and this cycle we should support this cycle by our actions if you violate this this brings sorrow not only to ourselves but to the rest of creation so this is the basic idea which sri krishna talks about the 16th verse let's chant that i will um, chant it and then you please follow after 16th verse of chapter 3 we have done it last time but this is the recap ಪ್ರವರ್ತಿಕ್ರಂಯೋಂದ್ರಿಯೋಘಂ ಪಾಥ ಸ ಜೀವತಿ mogham partha sajivati so krishna says to arjuna o arjuna o partha the one who does not follow this cycle which cycle he has already spoken about that in the in the verses before this one who does not follow this cycle which has been set in motion by me by me as god that person leads a sinful life what kind of sinful life 
full of indulgence in sense pleasures. Indriya Rama. The whole point is to have a party. The whole of life becomes <laughs> about, about pleasure. And such a person lives in vain. Mogham Partha Sajivati. So this is his conclusion. What is, he, what is he talking about? If you remember, he mentioned a cycle that um, um, you please the gods, he means the Vedic gods. You please the gods with the sacrifices which are me mentioned in the Vedas. And the gods pleased by your sacrifices sent forth rain and the rain causes uh, crops to grow and you, uh, these, this food sustains you. And from this comes uh, progeny, and they in turn perform the sacrifices, and the cycle goes on. Basically, this idea of a cycle is very interesting. Um, I will not go into all the discussions which we had last time, but just to remind you a little bit, we talked about deep ecology, that we are all part of nature, the entire modern green movement, all of that, that we are all part of nature. We are not separate from nature, nature is not our property. So what we do to nature, nature does to us also. And nowadays we don't have to say that very much because um, if, you, if you violate, as Sri Krishna says, if one violates this cycle, this natural cycle, then the result is sorrow. Global warming, rising temperatures, and so many problems across the world. It, it's very natural. It's, it'll just... Um, don't take care of nature, nature doesn't take care of you. Everything goes around in a cycle here. When we were kids, we learned about the water cycle, and I, we had to draw this, you know, that water goes up in, uh, through evaporation and comes down as rain, and then um, it goes through the natural cycle, and then again back to the... So this water cycle we used to draw. But it's not just water. Everything in this world, not even just physical nature, even in society, in economy, in our, at our personal life, in emotions, what we get, again, we have to replenish this. We have to let go back into society because we are part of that. Wealth. So accumulation of wealth, very natural. But that accumulated wealth must again flow back into society. Um, for Not only for a healthy society, but also for a healthy personality. One uh, yogi in India, he put it in a simple rustic way. He said that we fools, we think that we, we are holding on to wealth. We don't understand that wealth is holding on to us. If I hold on to this chair firmly, I think I'm holding on to the chair, but I'm equally trapped. Now I can't go anywhere. <laughs> I'm stuck to the chair now. I'm holding on to money. I think I am holding on to money. Money is holding on to me. So at one point, one has to let go. Uh, this is, of course, said in a very simple and direct way. But um, I heard something similar, uh, very interesting. Recently, some of you must have heard, uh, you must have heard recently that uh, uh, Ram Das, who was a leading figure in the 1970s uh, spiritual movement in the United States, he passed away day before yesterday. He was suffering, he was uh, from cancer, I think he was living in Hawaii. He was a major figure at one time. He wrote a book, Be Here Now, I think. And that became a, a central, like sort of 
a key book for 1970s generation. He was, uh, before becoming Ramdas, he was a professor at Harvard University. He was a, um, prof in the Department of Psychology. And his other more infamous colleague, Timothy Leary, uh, so they started this whole thing of experimenting with drugs, LSD and all of that, psychedelics. So the whole movement started at that time. Anyhow, he was lucky. He moved on to, he got the grace of a very a great sadhu in India, Neem Karoli Baba, and he himself became Ramdas. And many famous people, uh, members of the spiritual movement here. Right now in New York, you have Krishna Das, who is well known for the bhakti chants and all, singing, bhajans, kirtans. He was inspired by Neem Karoli Baba and others also. Anyhow, my point here is, I listened to a talk by Ramdas on the net when I heard the news that he had passed away. So I was looking for some of his old talks in the 1970s. And so there's a humorous incidency, uh, incident he mentions. His friend was Milton Friedman, who was Chicago School Economics, Nobel Prize winner, very brilliant economist. So Ramdas mentions that how uh, Milton Friedman once told him this story. A church in California, a uh, big church, called Milton Friedman once, they called from that church, and they said, this year we have a huge surplus, huge amount of money is left over, and uh, we want to ask you about it. So Milton Friedman said, yes, so what can I say? So we want to ask you, which is the best investment? Money left over in the church. So Milton Friedman said, have you considered giving it to the poor? <laughs> this is a story being narrated by Ramdas. Have you considered giving it to the poor? And that person from the church, he said, are you the real Milton Friedman? A Nobel Prize winning economist, <laughs> monetarist, he's saying giving it to the poor. Are you the real Milton Friedman? And Milton Friedman replied, are you the real church? <laughs> this idea, this accumulation of wealth, to let go, and give it back into society. Of course, giving back also, it's not as easy or as simple as it sounds. We are now in the day of big charities. Um, there's this gentleman called Anand Giridhari Das. Uh, he's a writer, uh, political commentator, I think. He's written this book, Winner Takes All. He's a critique of this, you know, this cult of billionaires today. Anyway, I didn't know much about him, but somebody recommended him, and he was giving a talk at Harvard in the Kennedy School. I wanted to go, um, so I was all ready to go, but that, unfortunately, that day, we had six hours of lectures. At the end of it, all my, we used to call it in those days, Enthu. <laughs> it was gone. All, <laughs> no motivation left to listen to one more lecture. Unfortunately, I, I missed it. It was a very good talk, it seems. Luckily, they uploaded it on, um, uh, on, on YouTube, so you can see it a conversation with Anand Giridhari Das at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he critiques this whole movement of giving. He says, this modern form, giving is good, but this modern form of giving charity by billionaires, his critique is that um, by donating a few million dollars, they're keeping alive a system which allows them to accumulate billions and billion, billions, donating to causes, homelessness or um, the public education system, those causes which could have been addressed if the taxation system and certain other things had been taken care of, which would have made such 
enormous accumulation of wealth, improbable, but then you'd have had enough funds left over to look after these causes. Now you have these problems. Now there are some people who accumulate huge amounts of money, and they, um, he says, they whitewash it by giving certain amount of money, and he was very bold. Sitting in Harvard, he said Harvard is one of the key places where <laughs> he called it a reputation laundromat. But that apart, um, not only wealth, knowledge. Swami Vivekananda says in one of his talks in Belurmat to the monks, what good is your learning even if it is not for the benefit of, of, of others? Your life, your health, your learning, your wealth, all of it is again channeled back into society. And if one does not do this, why would one not follow this uh, cycle? Sri Krishna says, Indriya Rama an immature mindset for it's all for my pleasure I and mine let me grab it I will use all of this money why should I give it to anybody else I'll have a blast I'll have I'll enjoy myself I'll uh, um, buy gadgets and go on vacations and do this and that why should I spend for anybody else so this kind of an immature mindset what's wrong with this it does not lead to happiness why, why does one do this one does this because one expects one will be happy. I have earned a lot of money. Now let me spend it on myself. Why? Because that way I'll be happy. It does not work. Swami Vivekananda says in one place that the, it takes a little bit of maturity to see that doing things for others makes you happier. It's counterintuitive. I would think that doing things for myself will make me happier. Doing things for others makes me happier. That seems a little counterintuitive. But he says that is true. That's actually true. It, and Swami so Vivekananda goes on to say, the wise learn it quickly and the others take more time. They suffer. They go through suffering till they learn this thing. Uh, Indriya Rama. This engagement is pursuit of sensual pleasure and therefore for I and me and myself. That line from Somerset Mom, which I love so much, uh, in The Razor's Edge. He says uh, that uh, if you single-mindedly pursue pleasure, very soon you find nothing pleasing anymore. Single-mindedly pursue pleasure, very soon you find nothing pleasing anymore. So, Sri Krishna says this, evam pravartitam chakram, in this way th this cycle which has been set in motion, those who do not follow it, they live in vain. You do not get happiness for yourself. You do not get happiness, um, and, and the society also does not benefit. So society itself is harmed. In contrast, the 17th verse. Let's, uh, I'll chant and please re repeat after me. Yastuatmaratirevasyat, Yastuatmaratirevasyat, Atmatriptaschamanava, Atmatriptaschamanava, Atmanyevachasantushta, Atmanyevachasantushta, Tasya karyam navidyate, Tasya karyam navidyate. In contrast, the person who delights only in the self, self here means Atman, 
you can substitute God. If you are of the devotional inclination, you can substitute God. One who delights in the self, in the Atman, who is satisfied with the self, is content in the self alone, has no duties to perform. Tasya karyam navidyate. What does this mean? The word tu in um, Sanskrit means but. So it indicates a change of tone. In contrast to what, has, what was just said, in contrast to the person who does not perform karma yoga, here is the person who has performed karma yoga. Shankaracharya there, he has a long introduction to this, this verse. The idea is, suppose one follows this cycle and does one's part and lives unselfishly. The spiritual seeker who does this is now ready for enlightenment, is now ready for realizing that I am the Atman. The Atman which is pure being, pure, pure consciousness, pure bliss. I am that. I am that infinite, infinite self. And then doing that, this, this person now is ready to remain centered in the Atman, in, in the infinite being within. Has no need of anything outside. So using the words Atmarati, deli takes delight in the, in the Atman. Atma Tripta is completely satisfied by the Atman. Um, Atma Santushta is completely contented in the Atman. Suppose somebody says, all right, I can do that. I have heard, heard a number of classes and I, I can meditate and I can feel that I am the Atman, so I'll, be re I'll remain contented. Am I at this stage? How do I know that I've reached this stage? How do I know that I've transcended the stage of Karma Yoga? If this is the question. Shankaracharya in his commentary says that Krishna thinks Arjuna may have this in his mind. All right, you have taught me about karma yoga. You have taught me about the, the cycle, uh, the cosmic cycle and how to live life, a moral, ethical, giving, unselfish life. Now, what next? Because after all, the goal is enlightenment. So how do I know that I, I have reached the requisite qualifications for enlightenment? How is this? Do you go on doing this all your life? Or do you now graduate to the next level of enlightenment, to realizing that I am the self, to becoming an enlightened person, the Jivan Mukta? The question can be put in this way. Is it enough to be good? Is it enough to be ethical? Is ethics the final word? And this is an interesting question. Um, we had some interesting discussions with the professors uh, there in the uh, divinity school, in the philosophy department. One thing I heard there, and I've heard earlier also, is that um, there is so little discussion, deep discussion, philosophical discussion of ethics in Indian texts. There are very few. For example, I attended a class on um, classical Buddhist philosophy in India, a period of nearly a thousand years. And one text was the Bodhicharya Avatara of Shantideva, so which is all about altruism. And the professor said, look, this is the only text in this entire course which is about ethics. But ethics is such a big part of Western philosophy. So it's so strange that in this huge amount of literature in Indian philosophy, there is only very little or almost no discussion of ethics. Why is that so? Now, I was thinking about it, and the answer is very simple. The answer is that there is a deep, deep confusion in modern Western philosophy. The confusion is that enlightenment, God, Brahman, self, all those things don't exist. 
It's taken for granted. Those are superstitious. Those are religious. Nothing to do. But yes, ethics is important. And so we should talk about ethics. And ethics becomes a branch of philosophy. Now the deep confusion is this. That, number one, by discussing, arguing about ethics through reason, can you actually come to an understanding of what is right and wrong? Or you will keep on going uh, subtler and subtler arguments. There is no end to the discussion. Can reason lead to an uh, understanding of right and wrong? Ethics in Western philosophy says yes. The whole of Western, uh, ethics in Western philosophy is reasoning about right and wrong. So that's the first thing. And many, of, many philosophers, for example, like Wittgenstein and others, they say the ethics is not a matter of reasoning. Okay, this is one point. But worse, even worse, after, suppose you have, you have been able to decide after a lot of reading, lots of uh, uh, ethics textbooks and writing assignments and all of that, uh, Ethics 101, you have finished the course, now you have decided right and wrong. After deciding right and wrong through reasoning, through the power of reason itself, can you become a good person? Having decided what is right, now by that decision, can I now from now on be, be a good person? Can I stop doing bad things? Can I start doing good things? No. We know that. Everybody knows this is the human predicament. We know what is right. We don't feel like doing it. Duryodhana. <laughs> we know what is wrong. Can't stop myself from doing it. Duryodhana's famous reply to Krishna. Krishna said uh, to him that what you're doing is wrong. And Duryodhana, who is the villain in, in the war... He expresses something that every one of us knows. He says, my problem is not that I do not know right and wrong. Don't give me a course on ethics. Uh, ethics. I know what is right. My problem is I don't feel like doing it. I know what is wrong. Adharva. My problem is I cannot stop myself from doing it. Why not? Why don't you feel like doing what's right? And why can't you stop yourself from doing what you know to be wrong? You admit it. That it's wrong, why, can, why can't you stop yourself? He says something very powerful, that there is a force within me. Today we would call it the subconscious mind and what not. He says, there's a force in my heart which forces me along this path. I can't help it. Janami dharmam nachame pravritti. I know what is dharma, I have no interest in it. Janami adharmam nachame nivritti. I know what is wrong, I can't stop myself. By some power within my heart. As I am directed, as I am pushed, I am impelled to do these things. That is a hammer blow to our modern conception of ethics. You can't. Even after, even supposing, rationally after all arguments, you come to a decision, these are good and these are bad, and from now on I will do only good things, I will never do bad things, because this is my decision from now, and, uh, I, I have argued it out, I have read the textbooks, syllabus complete. After the syllabus, we are all moral saints. Never. It doesn't work that way. What is the Indian approach to it? Indian approach is what you see in the Gita, what you see in yoga, what you see in bhakti. We know that we have to be good. How do you do that? What prevents us from being good? Look what he just said. What prevents you from following the cosmic cycle? Indriya Rama. This tremendous engagement in sensual, in chasing sensual pleasures. The single-minded pursuit of pleasure. It will not, if it did any good, 
then God speed to you. But it doesn't do good. It only brings unhappiness upon unhappiness. And yet we pursue it. It's not a rational decision. It's not a decision of, of the intellect. It's a power in our subconscious, in, in modern terms. In old terms, they would say, in my heart. Pran, in Bengali, you say pran tane. My pran, my, it pulls me. So this was understood. And the remedy was not arguing about ethics. The remedy was practice, purifying the mind. So that what you understand to be good is also what you want to do. Now the problem is, I know this is good, but I don't want to do it. When I purify the inner instrument, chitta shuddhi, they call it. Chitta shuddhi, purification of the mind. How? By karma yoga. By following this cosmic cycle. By playing one's part in this cycle, ethical cycle of this universe. Being a responsible person, responsible citizen, uh, unselfish, caring about others, putting oneself last and others first. Doing all of this, it actually benefits me. It prepares the mind. It purifies the mind. Purifies the mind for what? For what lies beyond ethics? In none of these systems. We, I was talking about the Buddhist course on Buddhism. Buddhism, Jainism, in yoga, in bhakti, in Vedanta. In none of these systems is ethics the end of it. Ethics is the foundation for something that lies beyond you, a Vaishnava will say, I have to realize my Krishna, my, my Bhagavan, my Vishnu. Uh, the Buddhist will, have to, will say that I want to attain Nirvana. The Vedantin will say I have to attain self-knowledge, enlightenment. That is the goal. And it's real. Sometimes modern, we have these doubts, modern doubts, you know. That I've heard it some by, uh, expressed by some people. That isn't it possible that all this talk of God and um, religion is just to make people good? It's not that God exists, but if you talk about God and make people believe in God, so out of fear of God or out of the desire to realize God, we will try to be good. So the whole purpose is to be moral. No, 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 no. That's putting the cart before the horse, big time. God actually exists. This Atman we are talking about, the ultimate spiritual reality, it actually exists. It is worthwhile attaining. It's, the, it's the, attaining this, realizing this, moksha, nirvana, whatever you call it. It is truly, truly worthwhile. So this is our approach to the problem of ethics. That's why the discussion is about purifying the mind. Discussion is about devotion and meditation and service, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, raja yoga, knowledge. Not so much about what is right and wrong. And I was amazed, just a week before coming here, I chanced upon um, this essay by a, a philosopher, Susan Wolf. I think, I don't know where she is now. She's in one of the universities in the United States. She's still, uh, she's active. Actually, I was looking for, you know, the end, end term, you have to write papers. So I wanted to know what's a really, really good Philosophy, what does it look like? I mean, in today's modern Western philosophy, what, what does a good paper look like? So I googled it. Ex active philosophers today, best papers, best writing among active philosophers. Her name came up at the top. She's the, apparently the best writer, most clear writer. So I borrowed her book. The first essay in that collection is her most famous essay, why she's famous. The name of that essay is Moral Saints. And she says, her beginning, there is a deep problem with the study of ethics. 
what is the problem? I was amazed to see that what I had been thinking about, exactly that, that she has written there. That she said, is it possible, even after we decide what is right and wrong, to become a saint by reading what is right? It's neither possible, and then she goes on to say that it's also not desirable. The way we put ethics, we cannot lead your life like that. But the interesting thing comes at the end. She says, then if that is not the goal, to argue about ethics and then find out what is right and then become that, if that is not the goal, then ethics cannot be an end in itself. Ethics must be for something else. And she gives it a name, the meta-moral. Meta-moral. What is the meta-moral? She says, I don't know. But there must be something beyond ethics. And that's where she ends the essay. It's a major essay in modern philosophy now. Moral saints. Exactly this question. What lies beyond ethics? So here, Sri Krishna says, beyond karma yoga lies enlightenment, self-realization. That word, all of this comes from that word, but, tu, which distinguishes this from what went on earlier. After this initial preparation, one ascends to this stage. Now the question is, how do I know whether I've reached this stage? Try it for yourself. We'll immediately, our own mind will tell, tell us, can I remain centered in God or the self, Atma, as a witness self? Two minutes, one hour, two hours? Very difficult. We find it very difficult. One sadhu, Ram Sukhdasji, who is to live in India, uh, he passed away a few years ago. He was an expert on the Bhagavad Gita. That's all he studied all his life. He gave a beautiful uh, recipe for practice. He said, Japa, mantra, those who have got mantra, it applies to them. Mantra, Japa, repeating the name of God. He said, while doing your work in samsara, keep on repeating the mantra. And when the time comes to repeat the mantra, you know, twice a day you have to sit down, shut down everything and repeat the mantra yourself. Sit down quietly in meditation. When the time comes to take the name of God, forget samsara. Totally. What is the formula? When engaged in samsara, don't forget God. When engaged in calling on God, forget samsara. This is the practice. Good formula. But if you try to do it, then what will happen is, samsara will pull us. But remembering God in the midst of samsara, very difficult. You will find hours have passed. I forgot to take the name of my Krishna, my Rama. Gone. And the opposite, when I sit down, I will not think of samsara. Only Rama and Krishna or whatever I want to repeat, the name of God. Samsara will automatically, effortlessly enter into our meditation. (laughs) What the boss said, whether this work has been done, um, what shopping has uh, has to be done, and so many things, it will enter. What will I do after meditation? (laughs) (laughs) So all of that will enter in meditation. Why is this happening? This is the sure indicator that we have not graduated to the state which Sri Krishna talks about, where you delight in God, uh, you're contented with God, and you find uh, satisfaction in God. The three words used here, Sanskrit words, rati. Rati means taking delight in, being engrossed in something, like sense pleasures. So one uh, enjoys eating a mango, for example, and you take great joy in it. Uh, that pleasure, the taste, and the fragrance of it, that is rati. 
engagement in sense pleasure. Next word is tripti. These are common words in Sanskrit which are in almost every Indian language. Tripti, if you translate it, it means fulfillment. I have a desire, I fulfill that desire, that, that fulfillment which comes, that satisfaction which comes. That is called tripti. So I'm hungry, I eat. Now the hunger has been um, satiated. That is tripti. I feel full and contented, uh, fulfilled. And then santosha, that word he says, santushtaha. Another Sanskrit word, very subtle differences of meaning. Santosha means satisfaction or contentment. Contentment. I have so much money, I have, I have reached my target uh, of being a millionaire or something like that. Contented. Not for long, but anyway. So, contentment. These three words he uses, and all of them he connects to the Atman. Rati, being engrossed or taking delight in or pleasure in. Then, um, tripti, and then... Santosha. Tripti means uh, uh, fulfillment and Santosha means uh, contentment. Samsara cannot give you Rati, Tripti, Santosha. Samsara, the things of the world, because they continuously change. They are always changing. Even if you get pleasure out of it, even if you get some kind of fulfillment out of it, it's bound to go away after some time. The analysis is this. Samsara is continuously changing. Anityam, continuously changing. Samsara is jada, it's object to you. You are aware of it. Whatever you are aware of is samsara, the object there. And samsara is destructible, nashwara. It will be destroyed. People die, objects uh, are exhausted, um, they are destroyed, things break. The Atman is just the opposite. Samsara changing continuously. The Atman, the self, unchanging. Samsara, Jada, object. The Atman, awareness. Just the opposite. Samsara subject to death. The Atman is immortal. Now, between the changing and the unchanging, there can be no relationship. Interesting. Between the rapidly changing... And the absolutely unchanging, there can be no relationship. There may seem to be a relationship, but there actually cannot be a relationship. Imagine, if something is moving and you are not moving, there can be no relationship between you and that thing. Either if you catch hold of it, you will be dragged along, or it will stop. But one thing is moving and you are not moving, you cannot hold on to that. Samsara which is continuously moving, and you the unmoving witness, there is really no relationship between you and samsara. It's a devastating thing to say. Sounds philosophical when you say it. What you are saying is, between you, the pure subject, you have no relationship to what you consider to be even your property. What? <laughs> even your house, your car. Uh, no relationship. That your is, is an illusion. Husband, wife, children, yes. <laughs> My children, illusion there. Not even that. Not just that. Body. My body. What is mine about this body? Do you have the papers for the body? If the cops pull you over, show me the papers. Not for the car, for the body. Did you make the body? No. Nature made it. Do you sustain the body? Do you control the body? Does the body obey you? Not at all. 
And it would be absolutely disastrous if the body obeyed you. Because all the thousands of biochemical processes going on in the body all the time and down to the minutest cellular level. If you are given charge, now you are in charge. Drive it. <laughs> Medical emergency and 911 call. What did he, he tried to run his own body? <laughs> Nature does it. Nature does everything. We have an illusion of control over the body. You don't own it. You didn't make it. Do you own the materials out of which it is made? made the earth and the fire and the air and the water, all the biochemicals? No. You don't own the materials out of which it is made. It does not obey you. Not even for one moment. Then how is it yours? I and this body, this relationship, is an illusory relationship. Between the changing and the unchanging, there can be no relationship. Even thoughts, perceptions and thoughts, how are the thoughts? Where are they coming from? I think I think my thoughts. Not really. Where are they bubbling up from? And they shine in your light for some time and then disappear again. You know that uh, like a Brownian movement in a beam of light. In the morning you see a ray of sunlight entering your room. And you see tiny motes of dust moving around there. Our thoughts are like that. Imagine yourself as consciousness, as awareness. Thoughts, feelings, emotions. They all dance around in your awareness for some time and disappear from which darkness they have emerged and into which darkness they disappear, we have no idea. We do not have a relationship with our thoughts too. Even our thoughts, that, that's wrong. So, no relationship. Yet, how does this relationship come about? Why do I think that I will get joy from samsara? I will get delight, rati, tripti, santosha from samsara. Why do I think that? The psychology of pleasure. First thing which happens is, this Atman that we are talking about, this is hidden by a primal ignorance. Say, Swami, theory. Not theory. Right now if I say, suppose Advaita is true, suppose, then you are Satchidananda, you are existence consciousness place. I am that existence consciousness place. Do I really honestly know it or feel it? If you say, no, I really don't. That I don't know it. I accept that it is true and yet I don't know it. This is ignorance. You are actually admitting to that ignorance. So, after reading Advaita for a while, the question comes to us, oh, if I am Brahman, who has ignorance? The mind by itself cannot have ignorance. Brahman cannot have ignorance. Mind is an object. What, who's ignorant? If the mind is not mine, then the ignorance of the mind is also of no concern to me. So how do I get ignorance? Are you, are you following me? I'm enjoying myself. I don't know how many of you. <laughs> I'm, I'm off on a track. <laughs> the, it's, the opponents will ask this question. Where does this ignorance... Whose ignorance? Brahman, the ultimate reality, Brahman, Atman, pure being, what ignorance can there be? Nothing. It's like saying this darkness in the sun. Impossible. No, 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 ignorance is in the mind. But you said, I am not the mind, I am Atman, Brahman. So first of all, whether the mind by itself can have ignorance is doubtful. And even if it has, if it's not me or mine, what problem is it to me? So this question will come up. And it comes up. And Shankaracharya faces this question a few times in his commentaries. In the Gita commentary, in um, I think 13th chapter, somebody asked this question. That... Uh, Whose ignorance? Wait a minute, you have been talking about that you are Brahman and we don't know this and when we realize it, overcome ignorance, you are enlightened. But whose ignorance? Brahman can't be ignorant. Shankara's answer is very interesting there. It seems that he's pulling the opponent's leg but it's actually a deep answer. 
Whose ignorance? And Shankara says, why do you ask? And this person says, because I don't know. Oh, you admit it, you don't know, it's your ignorance. As long as we, technically you're correct, ignorance cannot be anybody's ignorance, ultimately. It is true that if you're Brahman, there can be no ignorance. But as long as you feel it, if you feel it and you feel the effects of ignorance, take it that ignorance is there and try to overcome it. In Hindi, they put it nicely, in Uttarakhand. I'll translate for you. Agyan ko siddhmat ki ji, agyan ko kaati hai mahatma ji. Do not try to prove the existence of ignorance. Try to overcome, cut down ignorance. <laughs> Why did we go down this route? So, we're talking about the psychology of pleasure. Ignorance veils our real nature as the Atman. If I am the Atman, I don't know it. What I'm presented with is a body-mind. This body-mind, it has certain things which are pleasurable to it, certain things which are um, painful. And I immediately, I the Atman, not knowing myself as the Atman, I the pure consciousness, not knowing myself as pure consciousness, I identify myself with an object presented to pure consciousness. What is the first object? Thoughts. Mind. I am this mind. These are my thoughts. Desires. Ah, these are my desires. These are my desires means nobody thinks in that way. We think as I want. The wanting comes up from the mind and I am this consciousness. Now I want. Body. I am cold. I feel hot. Um, I am ill. I am healthy. This body. Ill and healthy is more prana than body. I am hungry. I am thirsty. Prana. I am depressed. Mind. I am ignorant. Intellect. Not me, any of them. But I become identified with all of them. And a set of desires from past lives which, which bubble up and I try to, um, try to fulfill those desires. When I do succeed in fulfilling a desire temporarily, what happens is the desire subsides for a moment. I, I'm hungry, I eat something, the hunger subsides for a moment. I want entertainment, I watch a movie, the desire for entertainment subsides for a moment. When desire subsides, the Vedantic psychology is, the innate peace and joy and contentment of the self shine forth. Mind feels that touch of peace, of the spontaneous fulfillment which is our, always our nature. But what happens is, because we do not know we are the Atman, that touch of joy and peace and contentment, we mistake it, oh, I satisfied my desire, that's why I got pleasure. That's why I got happiness. That's why I got peace. I bought that object, so I felt happiness. That happiness is gone now, very quickly. Now I must buy one more, then I will feel again happiness. I ate that cookie, that's why I felt pleasure. Now the pleasure has gone. Now buy one, eat one more cookie, then I will feel that pleasure. Unfortunately, it does not work that way also. Uh, law of diminishing marginal utility economics we learn. The more, more units of consumption, the less and less uh, uh, happiness utility you get out of it. This is the psychology of pleasure. Eric Fromm, who was in this country a very perceptive psychoanalyst, he says, we have counterfeit happiness. What is happiness in our modern time? Building up tension and releasing it. That's what we are doing in modern society. Building up tension, 
buy this, buy this, do this, you know, go to, go to this vacation, buy this product, and that desire builds up. And then you release that um, tension by doing that activity or buying that thing or enjoying that thing. And that we think is happiness. Building up tension and releasing it. That's what goes under the name of happiness today. Eric Fromm said, 1960s, I think. But the problem is, this kind of chasing happiness is chasing a mirage. Lack of fulfillment, unhappiness returns very quickly. Not only that, now we need more desires. First of all, fulfilling these desires can never lead to satisfaction. Why? You're trying to get satisfaction from samsara, which is changing, which is jara in the, as an object and which is subject to destruction. You're trying to get satisfaction from that. You will never be satisfying. And whatever little satisfying satisfaction we get will never last. It will go away. The unsatisfactory, temporary nature of worldly pleasures leads us to try to repeat them, increase the variety of objects that we want, and therefore sign up to a, to a lifetime of sorrow. Imagine, in this changing samsara, where we try to arrange things to our benefit, Suppose our, our um, desires were fulfilled. Everything that I want, the house that I want to live in, I get that house. The car that I want to drive, I get that car. Not only that, the more subtle things, the behavior that I want from people, people around me, father, mother, brother, sister, colleagues, husband, wife, children, especially children, the way I want them to behave, they start behaving that way. Everything is perfect, suppose. Suppose it is possible. One day everything falls into place. How nice. I can see some people smiling. How nice it will be. But if samsara is changing, what will happen in the next moment? Change. A change from a perfect state with necessarily by definition will be an imperfect state. So the next state of samsara will be something that is un unacceptable to me. By definition, there cannot be any stable, lasting happiness to be got from samsara. Relationships. Perfect strangers meet. They don't know each other. Fall so much in love they decide to live together for the rest of their lives. After some time they become so disgusted with each other that they, they decide never to see each other's face again. You see. Ashtavakra says. Mai ananta maham Ascharyam jiva vichaya, udyanti gnanti khelanti pravishanti swabhavata. In me, the infinite ocean of awareness. How strange and wonderful are these jivas, sentient beings. They come up like waves in this ocean of awareness. Udyanti, they are born. Khelanti, play with each other. One Swami in Gangotri, was, was, Punjabi Sadhu, he was saying, Khelanti, they play with each other. He says, I love you, I love you. Gnanti, fight with each other. Divorce, divorce. Pravishanti, they die and go back into, into that ocean of awareness. How strange in the, is the play, play of jivas, of the individual sentient beings. Then, tripti, so this is rati, delight in sense organs. So how strange. Um, tripti, you eat something, hungry, eat something. Again in the evening, is it done, finished? No more eating the rest of the life? No, 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 again evening. Uber Eats, evening. <laughs> so again you have to repeat. And then 
contentment. I have certain targets. They always ask you, well, where do you see yourself five years from now, ten years from now? So I have certain targets. My bank balance must be this much. My relationships must be in this place. My career must be there. I must get this promotion and that promotion next. And funny story I remember. Uh, in, in, uh, perceptive, really interesting story. Uh, it concerns Tata. Those who are Indians, you would have heard the name. He's one of the leading industrialists, uh, Ratan Tata, in India, of the Tata family. In fact, uh, I was impressed to see in the Harvard Business School, the first building that you see when you enter the campus uh, on the side of the road, most impressive first building is the Tata building. So Ratan Tata donated money for that. Harvard Business School, I mean, the top business school in the world. Uh, I was just walking around and the lady there at the counter, she said, uh, oh, he has something to do with India, I think. I said, I also think so, something to do with India. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, the, the story I want to share with you is this. I heard it from a brother monk who saw this. This was many, many years ago. Swami Bhuteshanandaji was the president of the order. He was the 12th president of the order in Ramakrishna Mission in our main monastery in Belurmat in, near Calcutta on the bank of the Ganga. Swami Atmastanandaji was the general secretary of the order at that time. This was in the late 90s um, or early 90s. And uh, Ratan Tata came on a visit of, to Belurmat. So what happened, the interaction that I heard from this monk, he said, um, Ratan Tata asked the general secretary, um, so how do you train these young monks? What happens stage by stage? And it was explained to him that the young men, they come, they come as novices, then they become what is called pre-probationers after certain years, and after certain years they become probationers, um, they get the vows of brahmacharya, and then finally, after about nine or ten years, they, they get the vows of sannyasa. And, uh, and their responsibilities and work also keep on increasing and things like that. Then he said, oh, it's, then it's not so different from the Tata Industries. And he said, that's how we recruit young people. They come and then we uh, induct them and we train up and give them higher and higher responsibilities over time as it proceeds. Swami Bhuteshanandaji was the president. He said, there's one big difference. What when a young man enters your industry, the Tata company, he always, this young person, man or woman, always thinks that one day I will be the manager and the general manager and the CEO uh, and the president. Uh, this is my progress. And it's very natural for him to think that. That's the source of contentment, target, goal. None of these young people who come to this monastic order, they ever think, that one day I'm going to be the head of this monastery, then I'm going to be the head of the whole order or something like that. Never. What do they think of? What is the goal then? They always think, how can I be a better sadhu? How, how can I become a sadhu? How can I become a good monk? How can I improve my, how can I become a good meditator? How can I uh, cultivate devotion? How can I serve others? How can my life be blessed by, by doing these things? So this is the difference. Worldly person and a spiritual seeker. As far as desires are concerned. Multiplication of desires and satisfaction of desires is the definition of happiness for a worldly person. Right or wrong? Just think about it. The whole advertising industry, eh? Madison Avenue and everything. What is it? Multiplication of desires and satisfying those desires. And that is the definition of happiness.
That's how happiness, what happiness is and how it is to be attained. That's for the worldly person. The spiritual seeker, just the opposite. Transcending desires. Desirelessness is the criteria for happiness. We're going to minimize our desires, transcend our desires. That gives the spiritual person happiness. Not fulfilling desires, not having desires, dukkha for a worldly person, suffering. Having desires, unable to overcome desires, is dukkha for a spiritual person, suffering for a spiritual person. This is the difference. What is the solution? Suppose I cannot reach that state where I am uh, where I am contented with the Atman, where I take delight only in the Atman, where I am fulfilled by realizing that I am the Atman. Suppose I cannot reach that stage, he says, Karma Yoga. Transform our act- activities. Live a life. So transform our activities into spiritual activities. That's still a little vague. What do I actually do? And he says, fulfill your part in the cosmic cycle. What you are receiving, always give. Yeah. Swami Vivekananda says, Give, give, and do not look back. Whoever looks, ba- whoever looks back, his ocean dwindles into a drop. Look back, I have given so much. That's enough. Enough for my taxes for this year. The ocean dwindles into a drop then, spiritually speaking. It's good to give anyway. So one place, one lives this moral, ethical, responsible way of living. This is not the goal, but this is the preparation. And that prepares the mind for the higher spiritual life. Um, this remaining stabilized in the self. And he says here, Tasya karyam navidyate. When one reaches that state, there are no more duties. Karyam literally means the duty, the thing to be done. There's nothing to be done for this person, for this person who has accomplished karma yoga, who has purified the mind. Nothing to be done means three meanings are there. Tasya karyam navidyate. You can, that person has no more work to be done. Has to be understood in three ways at least. One way is because there are no desires to fulfill. There no, there is no more action to be undertaken for fulfilling desires. Most of our action is for fulfilling our own desires. For myself. For the self. We may think not. It's a very selfish way of thinking, Swami. No, actually that's the way we think. I mean, we are not recommending that you think that way, but that's the way we think. There's this story of a, an executive of a multinational corporation who said, I really, really love my job. I do it because I love the job. And the person was asked, so suppose we stop paying you? Will you still do the job because you love the job so much? He said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you have to pay, pay me. So you're doing it for the money, not for the work itself. And give me a, given a choice, suppose you get the money and don't have to do the work. Or you do the work but you don't get the money. Which one will you choose? I said, oh, yeah, you are right. I'm doing it for the money. But is it for the money? Is it really for the money? Suppose you're told that you're given all the money but you can't spend it. So, no, 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 no. I have to spend it. I have to buy things for my wife and children and parents and all of that. Then yes, the person was told, all right, you can buy things for others, you can use the money that you are given, but they are no longer your wife, parent, children. They have no connection to you. You spend for others. So no, no, they have to be mine. So ultimately all of that, whether it's the job or the money or the parents or wife, children, all leads back to self. That's where Vedanta attacks. 
The whole problem is if we consider the self to be this limited being, physical body and mind, then the whole of samsara comes in. If you, what Vedanta does is, it shifts the reference of the word I. When I say I, what does it refer to? This, in that case, samsara. The witness consciousness, freedom from samsara. So that shifting is accomplished by Vedanta. So that is one meaning of the, of the phrase, there is no more work to be done by such a person. The person who has realized the self does not need to do work to satisfy desires. Does not have these desires to be satisfied. So will not do any desire prompted actions. There is no more work to be done. Second meaning is, in a deeper sense, in Vedanta considers all action that is going on in the universe, especially the work that we do, all of it is ultimately meant for enlightenment. Aurobindo, beautiful statement, Rishi Aurobindo, he said, life itself is yoga. If you do it consciously, you say, I am a yogi. But if you do it unconsciously, you say that I am just living life. If you do it unconsciously, you are living life, but it, that's an unconscious process, takes time and much more suffering. Consciously, if you are spiritual, a yogi. So life itself is yoga. All action is finally meant to take you to enlightenment. Whatever we have done in life, we may not. We may be the rankest atheist. No belief in God, religion, spirituality, nothing at all. I am here to earn money. Fine. That action is also taking you to Godward. Very indirectly. Roundabout way. Lifetimes of effort. But it is taking you there. We are trying to find lasting peace and satisfaction. And that is found nowhere else except in, the, in our real nature, in the self. In the real nature. So all actions are meant for that. Now suppose this person has already realized that and is centered in the Atman, then no more action is necessary. If all action is meant to take us to enlightenment and you have achieved that or you have made that breakthrough and you are centered in that, you are not shaken away easily from that, then action is not necessary for you. Third meaning of this, Tasya Karyam Navidyate, third meaning is this. There is actually action after enlightenment. You just have to look at the lives of enlightened people. Vivekananda. Tremendous action. Even Sri Ramakrishna, Holy Mother, all of them, till their very last day, they were fully engaged in action. But action, work, now becomes an expression of their enlightenment. And it's always for the welfare of others rather than this one limited individual being. So, Tasya Karyam Navidyate, that person has no more duty to be accomplished it does not mean that after an enlightenment there is no action. Third meaning is there is the action which is an expression of that enlightenment. Do enlightened beings act? Do they do anything? Technically, from an Advaitic perspective, no. If you ask that enlightened being, are you, are you doing lots of things? No. I am I'm Brahman. Brahman does nothing. But practically from the outside, if you look at that person, take a third person view, often they are much more active, much more... Uh, Helpful to society than the rest of us. Their lives are a blessing to the rest of us. So these are the three meanings of Tasya Karyam Navidyate. Let's do one more verse and we'll stop. Naiva Tasya Krite Nartho Naiva Tasya Krite Nartho Nakrite Neha Kashchana Nakrite neha kashchana 
नाभूतेषु नाभूतेषु कश्चिदर्थव्यपाश्रय कश्चिदर्थव्यपाश्रय दिस पर्सन द एनलाइटन पर्सन हेज नथिंग टू गेन फ्रॉम डूइंग समथिंग नथिंग टू लूज ऑल्सो बाय नॉट डूइंग समथिंग बाय डूइंग समथिंग इट इज नॉट गेन एनीथिंग बाय नॉट डूइंग समथिंग इट डज नॉट लूज एनीथिंग हियर बिकॉज द पर्सन इज रियलाइज द सेल्फ विच इज द ऑल इन ऑल नॉट ओनली दैट नचास्य सर्वभूतेशु कश्चिदर्थव्यपाश्रय दिस पर्सन इज ट्रूली इंटरनली इंडिपेंडेंट डज नॉट डिपेंड ऑन एनी बडी और एनी एनीथिंग फॉर एनी फॉर एनीथिंग एट ऑल डज नॉट डिपेंड ऑन एनी बडी on any being there is no dependence because this person is centered in the self in the atman this is two problems one is activity and the other one is inactivity the problem of activity we know very well manhattan busiest city uh, i saw this slogan in an airport i think jfk or laguardia it says uh, the city that never sleeps but dreams the city that never sleeps but dreams <laughs> it's true uh, it's one of the busiest cities in the world here if you sleep it's counted as wasted time wasted if you're sleeping so <laughs> as much time as you can spend in in action what is the term workaholic workaholic yes the people addicted to uh, action i heard uh, i don't know how far it's true that in japan corporate workers have to be forced to take their uh, vacations they have to force to take vacations and they don't want to stop working even among monks i have seen there was this swami very interesting funny swami is passed away so i can tell the story now he was one of the hardest workers i have seen very dynamic very hard working he would tell the head swami the, swami, the head of the ashram where we were uh, we were novices at that time brahmacharis so this uh, novice who was senior to me he would tell the head of head swami swami i am available at your disposal from 4 am in the morning till 11 in the night anything any time you want and really amazing things he could do so any kind of work that you get. and he said that and he would take, look after two or three departments uh, in the ashram altogether he said i am like those uh, donkeys you know unless you put a big load on them they don't start moving <laughs> so you give a lot of work to me then i start working but i noticed something interesting about this uh, monk when there was no work when he sat down he immediately fell asleep now that is not a good thing you should be calm and serene engaged in action when I, when you're called uh, upon to act and yet when you're left uh, alone you should be your mind should be alert and and alive and uh, directed inwards in spiritual life so i vivekananda said in the midst of intense action eternal calmness and in the midst of the calmness of the, of the mountain caves he says in the, in the mountain caves there absolute calmness outside internally the mind should be able to work like a blast furnace he says you are intensely thinking something many of these philosophical books we are reading they were written by monks living in caves i grew up in a place just outskirts of which you know this place is um, um dhavalgiri and others in near bhuvaneshwar uh buddhist monks more than 1500 years ago they used to live in those caves and many of them produced 
philosophical works which we are studying in Harvard now in 21st century. But see, sitting in a cave, they are not connected to internet and uh, uh, with Starbucks coffee and laptop and writing papers. No. The once a day they go out to a nearby village to beg for their food and the whole day is spent in meditation and thinking and lifetime they will write one book which 2000 years later we are still reading. So, Intense action, mentally, externally calm. Intense action outward, internally calm. That is the ideal of Karma Yoga, Swami Vivekananda says. So addiction to action is not good. The opposite is also not good. Laziness. <laughs> so that's, uh, that is tamasic. Addiction to action is rajasic and addiction to laziness is tamasic. Laziness is also connected to dependence. Won't do anything for oneself. I have seen among all the great swamis, one interesting characteristic was an independence. Not depending. Sarvam paravasham dukkham. Whatever is, depends on others. If your happiness, your peace of mind depends on others, suffering is guaranteed. No matter what others do, I am happy. No matter what others say, I am happy. No matter what others think, I am happy. No matter what others think, I am happy. I remember in the um, Himalayas, there was this monk, a very daredevil kind of monk. Now, monks also gossip. So. <laughs> a group of monks, th this happened, a group of monks came to this monk and they were saying, that, um, you know Mahatmaji, what they are saying about you in that ashram? Rumors. Uh, what they are saying about you in the ashram? And this monk said, it's all true. <laughs> In Hindi he said, sab sach hai. Even without asking what, what they are saying, it's all true. Said, what do you mean? You just wanted to know whether the rumors are true. I don't know what the rumors are, but just take it to be true. That will make you happy, right? <laughs> you know, you get a little bit, very uh, good gossip. Then, oh, you are getting angry. Said, no, I'm not angry. I just don't care. You may think uh, something about me. Fine, it's all true. In, uh, he just said in Hindi, sab sach hai. So it does not, my happiness does not depend on it. It's easier for a monk, you might think. It's easier for a monk. But that's not really true. It's a personality type. And it's also an internal training. Even in the midst of uh, society, in a corporate environment, in a family environment, one can still do that. These things are connected. If my attitude is, I am here to give. I am here to look after, to take care of others. Then I really don't, bother about what other things others think about me so you get that great peace and inner strength independence uh, old swamis i still remember yes i'll come to you i was waiting for a question so i'll come to you i remember this old swami he was in his 80s uh, in our monk's quarter in belurmat hardly able to walk he said proudly, the general secretary was visiting the monk's quarters. General secretary of the order. And this old Swami was sitting there. The old Swami very proudly said, I water the flower pots. So he has to walk with, you know, a walker? With the, yeah. has to walk with that. He takes the scan of water and he waters the flower pots in the morning. I water the flower pots. And the general secretary said, yes. Don't sit and eat. In, in Bengali he said, Boshe Boshe Khyona. 
never said. So always, wherever you are, you give something as much as possible to others. Yes. I, I was also told, we often, uh, as novices, we had to take care of the senior elderly swamis. And I was told by a swami that when you take care, when you're looking after, a, there was a very senior swami in that ashram in his uh, in nearly 90 years old. Always let him do what he can do. Don't try to do things for him out of your eagerness. Which uh, so that's, I think that's the care for, of the elderly. This one thing you are taught that uh, the independence is very important. We have a question. We'll end with a question. The, it occurred to me. Uh, where does uh, the say a great scientist or a great artist or a uh, musician or anything of that type? Uh, fit into this picture that you are uh, uh, giving here. I mean, the work of uh, a great scientist has uh, uh, many uh, uh, repercussions uh, in, in the world and uh, to people. And, uh, and if he does not take... Uh, uh, pride in that uh, is he uh, uh, and he's but he's not a monk hmm. uh, he's uh, doing doing this work say take Einstein so, uh, like that yes uh, or uh, uh, or for the artist uh, Say some uh, someone like Van Gogh or uh, uh, Picasso or I mean they are uh, uh, adding to the the general life of people. Yes. And uh, what? Where does that do they yes. fit into this picture? If you narrow down the question to. Where, how is this related to spirituality? That is the spirituality we're talking about. How is this related? Is it spiritual or not to be one of the great scientists and uh, um, artists, writers, the creative people in our society? No. Um, the answer is yes and no. Yes, it could be spiritual, and no, it need not be spiritual uh, necessarily. I was just thinking. I lived in three interesting places in the last three years. One is Hollywood. One is Manhattan. The third one is Harvard. One is glamour and uh, you know fame and uh, the movie industry. One is money here. I'm generalizing, but it's money. And the other one where I am right now there, that's learning, science and art and research and all. And the vibrations of the places are different. You can feel it. And these are the peaks of human achievement in our world today. These are some of the greatest places in the world today to live in. Although I must say, I was in Silicon Valley just a couple of months ago. I had gone to San Jose. When I told them, I've lived in three, this line I, I spewed that I lived in LA and in like, uh, you know, Hollywood and Manhattan and Harvard and learning and money and glamour. They said, oh, all that is overrated. The best place is Silicon Valley. We have the smartest people. We have the most intelligent people. We have the richest people. Everything is here. Those places are overrated. <laughs> anyway, my feeling is this. Since I got, 
is what Sri Ramakrishna said, the one and the zero. If you put a lot of zeros together, it's still zero. But if you have a one and you keep adding zeros to it, then the value increases. The one by itself is still valuable and you add one zero, it becomes 10. Add one more, it becomes 100. Add one more, it becomes 1,000. But you keep just the zeros, nothing. What do I mean by that? One could be a brilliant writer or a scientist whose work actually has tremendous uh, effect um, for a shorter or longer period on society. All that is true. But I'm asking, what about the person himself or herself? One could still be miserable internally. One could unfortunately still be a miserable human being also. One could be a great arti artist and an extremely nasty human being. One could be a great writer and somebody you would not want to meet socially. <laughs> could be. But the other way is also true. There are examples among scientists, writers, artists who are, along with their talents, along with their achievements, they're also deeply spiritual. He mentioned Einstein. Einstein was deeply spiritual. Swami Vivekananda said, one can attain that um, spiritual realization, one can do it by religion, by science, and by art. But one needs Advaita to understand this. This is what he said, Sister Nivedita quotes him. Sister Nivedita, in the introduction to the complete works of Swami Vivekananda, he said that our master told us, you can actually become spiritual through art. You can become spiritual through science also, he says, as well as religion. But that quest must be there. That search for that one must be there. Just because, see, after all, to a great extent, a great scientist or a writer or an artist, most of these are talents with which you come. And a lucky break in life. So there's a driving passion from within. You have the capacities, the intellectual capacity or the artistic capacity, the creativity for some period in your life and you achieve a lot. But that may not have much relation to spiritual life. May not. But could have. And if it has, then it's all the better. Spiritual plus a great thinker. Wonderful. That's one plus one more zero, one more zero. And the value keeps on increasing. If a, if a spiritual seeker is also a writer, a musician, an artist, or a scientist, wonderful. Nothing like that. That's what I think. All right, on that very nice uh, question, let's... let's uh, con you had a question? Okay, the last question there. Just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Um, um, I'm afraid this is not really relevant to the topics that we discussed through Bhagavad Gita today. But personally, my problem is I'm like Buddhist yesterday, Shaivite in the morning, Vishnu Bhakta in evening, and Christian in the night before I sleep. So and it's very personally very hard to find what path is mine or what's the God's name I have to recite. So do you have any advice? To you have come to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read a book called The Perennial Philosophy? Yes, I have. Yes. Aldous Huxley, there at the very beginning, he says, underlying all the great spiritual traditions of the world, there is what we might call a perennial philosophy, that there is an ultimate reality. 
to be attained. There is a method to attain it. And that is the goal of life. This is common to all the paths. And all the paths have deep truths in them. There is an idea called the Ishta. Ishta means your chosen idea. Choose. Yes. It's hard it, to choose because sometimes this deity appears, sometimes this, this deity appears. Right. So you take initiation under a guru in a particular tradition. It could be in our own tradition also. But you take initiation under a guru. And the advantage of having a liberal and open tradition like this is all the insights that you get from mystic Christianity, from Sufism, from Buddhism, from all those things, from Shaivism, all those things go to, to uh, enhance and uh, uh, make your spiritual life richer and stronger. And yet, you are digging a well in this one place. If one digs a well now a little bit here, another bit there, and then the next, the next day in another place, you will never get water from there. Whereas if you had kept on digging in the same place, you would have gotten water. What you want is that you want to settle down in, in one path and search deeply there. And yet at the same time, you don't want to let go of the advantages of all the other paths. That's what you want. If you were fanatical and narrow, this question wouldn't have come. You would have found one and that's it. Everything else is wrong. But you notice that there is something very good in each of those paths and something attractive in each of those paths. How to get the benefit of all those paths and yet be a sincere and deep practitioner of one path. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, the path itself is not important, but one must sincerely follow one. In Bengali, he said, Look at the, look at the beautiful combination. He is not particularly fanatical about this path or that path. And yet, he says, don't do what you are doing. Hold on to one and follow one. And you can use the insights of all the others to enrich in your path. To make your path rich. Swami Vivekananda said that um, by meditation... By service, by devotion, and by knowledge, by Vedantic knowledge, that means uh, philosophical knowledge. By one or more or all of these, be free, and that is the whole of spirituality, of, of religion. So all the paths will be useful. And as you start practicing in one path, suppose you take initiation from a guru and start practicing in that way, very soon you will see your own tendency will come out. That uh, are you basically a philosopher? Are you basically a meditator? Are you basically a man of action who wants to do good to the world? Are you basically loving and devotional? Or some mixture of one or two or three of these? It will come up. For every practitioner within a few months, few years, a certain mix comes to the top. So my advice would be, see what, what pulls you. Of all the things which pull you, what do you feel to be the one which pulls you a lot and you consider it to be high it should be liberal, open. It should not be a path which tells you, now you come to this path, that's it. And you have to shut the door to everything else. You have to consider everything else is false. Only this is correct. And you have to follow this only. That will not work for you. And that's not a good way to go. So you should go and down a path which is uh, open and liberal and yet deep. Uh, so you have explored enough. Take up something. And start practicing. Commit. Thank you very much. We'll discuss it later. Uh, oh. Some of he's very insistent. All right. Question. You've really run out of time. Uh, sorry to uh, hold you.
So I, I just have a one question. Um, uh, you uh, keep mentioning about uh, it's an ignorance that uh, the individual being we talk about, um, we are Atman. And uh, Samiji, I have a question. Like, uh, you keep talking about um, this is ignorance. This is ignorance. So if Atman is the reality, I mean, if Atman is Brahman, so why Atman is in ignorance? Ah. Uh, so that, I think we have talked about it more than once in these sessions. Yes, if you think deeply about Advaita, you will come to this question. You'll come to this question. And uh, Swami Vivekananda's answer to this was, there is no answer to this. Why not? Uh, notice one, I'll just give you the answer in brief, and then we'll stop. Notice the language of your question. Why is the Atman in ignorance? You're asking this question? Why is the Atman in ignorance? But even the question why is part of what we consider Maya, ignorance. After all, what is this ignorance? Ignorance is an English word. The Sanskrit word is avidya or Maya. And there's a definition, there's a specific definition of that Maya. Space, time and causation. Desha, Kala, uh, Nimitta. Nim uh, causation. Causation is cause and effect. Why? Whatever you can ask why about is already your, your accepted causation. See, if you say, what is outside space? If you ask what is outside space, do you see the question is wrong because you've already accepted space. When, when there's inside, outside the space is already there. If you ask what is before time, you've already accepted time. Because before and after is a time word. Similarly, if you ask why ignorance, then you already accepted ignorance because why causation is a part of ignorance. Yeah. That is the answer that Sadhu, I quoted in Hindi, uh, the Uttarakhand Sadhu, he said, don't try to prove or establish ignorance. Try to cut down ignorance. He said in Hindi, Mahatma ji, agyan ko siddh mat kijiye, agyan ko kaatiye. When we go to... Or the best answer I found was um, the enlightened people, those who are enlightened, those who have got Brahmagyana, they don't seem to be bothered by this question. So somebody said, on our side there is the question, there is no answer. On their side they have the answer but no question. <laughs> Good place to end. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu